Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. I am joined by Sarah M. Colson, who was a former CIA officer who was stationed in Tripoli. A year into her deployment, the situation in Libya deteriorated, and it was decided to evacuate the U.S. mission in Tripoli. Sarah played a key role in leading over 150 staff from the U.S. mission to safety. After a legal dispute with the CIA, she is now able to tell her story publicly for the first time in her book, In the Dark of War, which we discuss today. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are many ways you can support it. First of all, you can share episodes with friends, family and colleagues. You can also retweet an episode and connect with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. You can also support the show by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash DryCleanerCast, Patreon subscribers will get early access to episodes and there are two bonus episodes waiting for you. Also, if you like this podcast, you may enjoy my film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction and the film is now available on Amazon and iTunes. It comes in at about $2.99. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Oh, it's great to have you on. For the benefit of listeners unfamiliar with you and your work, can you please just tell us a bit about yourself and what you can about your career in the CIA? Yes. So I am a former CIA officer and I have a book coming out called In the Dark of War that will be published June 23rd. And it's about my time in Libya, which we'll be talking about today. But I actually joined the CIA in 2008 and served as a counterterrorism officer. And prior to that, I worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency for about five years. So in total, I did about 12 years and it was all counterterrorism focused. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. So you're, you, uh, you've seen a lot of interesting things in your career. Yes, yes, I have. It spanned quite a lot. I started with a deployment to Baghdad in mm. 2003, so pretty soon after um, the war there, and then um, spent a lot of time in the Middle East in yeah. North Africa, um, doing sort of short and medium term trips, and then Libya ended up being the longest. Yeah. So you've, you've written this fantastic book, which we're going to discuss today. It's called In the Dark of War, and it's about your time as a CIA officer in Libya. So please, can you just talk to us a bit about how you sort of prepared for your deployment to Libya? Yes. Yeah, so I applied for the position in 2012 before the Benghazi attacks. So mm. I knew that I was going to be going there and started preparing in 2012. So I had about a year to get ready. I went to language training. So I learned Arabic the first year. The goal yeah. is just to get twos. So I ended up getting a two plus in reading, which was pretty cool. Um, and I, I was really glad for that. You meant, is in your book, you mentioned those levels. Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of levels of proficiency? Because that was quite interesting. Yes, we um, have levels. So it goes zero through five. And zero is basically you can say hello or something like that. Yeah. And five is native speaker. So that is, I think, generally reserved just for native speakers. So there was no way I was going to get to a level five. So with Arabic, the goal is to get to a level two after a full year of training. So mm -hmm. in comparison, like the Romance languages, so Italian or Spanish, it would be a few months and you would get to a level three. Yeah. To get to the level three in Arabic, it was another full year. So it's two years, two full years just to get to level three. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And you were saying, sorry, am I right? You were saying that you applied this role before the Benghazi attack? Yes. So you must have been mid-studies when that happened. I knew I was going to be going when it happened, yes. So yeah. I was in Arabic language training at the time, and I was doing a lot as well um, with the CIA officers or analysts at headquarters to um, learn as much as I could about Libya before I would go. So I'd meet with them pretty frequently and read up on anything they were writing and had a lot of briefings and things like that in preparation for going. I also 
read a lot of books. So any books that were coming out on the Arab Spring or what happened there, I was trying to get as familiar as possible before actually deploying or before going. Yeah. And how do you kind of mentally prepare yourself for that? Because I think if somebody said to me that this time next year, I'm going to be deployed to, I don't know, somewhere like Libya, I think I'd be freaking out like the entire year. I think it helps to um, have a passion for it. So yeah. I felt really strongly about counterterrorism. I joined because of the 9-11 attacks. So mm. it was mm. a direct correlation. And I knew in going that, you know, I have this passion for protecting people. That's sort of my life goal. That's what I wanted to do. And the reason I chose Libya is because we had um, gotten some document exploitation during the raid uh, against Osama bin Laden. Mm. And we found that Al-Qaeda was looking at Libya as a base of operations to launch Mm. attacks into Europe. Mm. So that is why I was specifically interested in Libya and helping with that problem and trying to prevent that from happening. Yeah, yeah, well, it was very brave of you. And what was your? Are, are you able to? Were you able to tell your family where you were going and things like that? What was their reaction? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm quite close to my mom, and so I I tell her, you know, I I know there's mixed things that people hear on how much you can tell your family members. Um, I don't I didn't have a spouse at the time, but um, you're perfectly able to tell close family members. It's I think more about the risk and if you trust them not to tell other people so for me like I I knew I could trust my mother um so I let her know where I was going my brothers also knew uh, I have three brothers and they were all um active duty or former military so yeah they um they got that as well yeah, no, I remember when you were describing the book, I was kind of thinking a little bit of uh, Saving Private Ryan because of your family connection, both to World War Two and obviously your brothers and things um, in the current situation. Yes, uh, my family has strong military background, uh, grandparents, uncles, brothers, stepdad, um, yeah. all have served. So service is really important in my family. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So um, are you able to kind of give us a, a dummy's guide to, to the power dynamics that were in play? in Libya at the time of your deployment because it's quite it's quite a complicated place and I was even watching um was it Anthony Bourdain's show in Libya and, and just after reading your book I don't think they even managed to scratch the surface on that show yes it, well it was quite complicated there were many different groups operating there yeah um, so after after the Arab Spring and um, Gaddafi was killed the um militias sort of grew in power and authority. So there were quite a few militias that were operating there. Um, and a lot of them were based on the tribal affiliation. So the the main one that, or I guess there's two that I really focused on in the book, and that is the Zintan militia, mm. and they're associated with the tribe. And then there's the Misrata militia associated with the city of Misrata. Those two were the main focus because we were on Zintan land where we were living at the embassy and the residence compound. And then um, the Misratan militia, because they ended up um, sort of spearheading Operation Dawn. There were also a lot of smaller neighborhood militias in Tripoli proper. And so we were looking pretty closely at the dynamics between the militias. And then, of course, the overriding concern was answer al-Sharia. They were the terrorist group that conducted the Benghazi attacks. So that was a major focus of mine while I was there in um, tracking their activities and their interest in coming to Tripoli. So it was definitely on our minds um, the entire time that we were there. Yeah. And what was the situation with the government? Because it seemed to be that, you know, there was sort of uh, the president and the prime minister were kind of at odds of each other. You had the Minister of Defense and the, is it the Minister of Information and all sorts of weird things going on with that dynamic? So in the Libyan government, there was a prime minister. Um, It was Ali Zaydan at the beginning when I was there. And then there was also a president um, that was Nuri Abu Sahmein. So they were often at odds and had different affiliations. And so kind of break it down a little bit um, in the book as well. And it really wasn't like there were two sides, but that's the easiest way to explain it. Mm -hmm. So um, the prime minister sort of affiliated more with the Ministry of Interior and the Zintan militia and the Zintan tribe and sort of the more, I say, secular aligned, but it 
it wasn't necessarily secular. It was just sort of an easier way to describe it, to simplify it. Yeah. And then on the other side, it was uh, the president with the Ministry of Defense. And then they had these different units called shield units, Libya mm-hmm. Shield, one, two, three. So the shield units affiliated with the Ministry of Defense, but they were actually just militias that were brought in wholesale and then dubbed part of this um Libya Shield movement, which was part of the defense. So they were still very much affiliated with their uh, their own militias and tribes. Mm-hmm. Two of them came from Benghazi. So Libya Shield 1 and Libya Shield 2 were from Benghazi. So they had some affiliation with Ansar al-Sharia. So those were the ones that were um, of most concern to me. Mm, yeah. And what was the attitude of the local Libyans towards their situation and the role of America and the West at large? It certainly changed throughout the year. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, with the Benghazi attacks, there was some um, sympathy about um, what happened there. Um, the role that we had um, in toppling Gaddafi, like there was a lot of support at first, but it definitely started to change mm-hmm. um, throughout the year. Uh, it was noticeably growing more hostile, not just towards, you know, us as Americans, but towards um, all the foreign, um, really all the foreign embassies there. Mm-hmm. There was um, quite a lot of like angst growing throughout the year, a lot of um, hostility. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a friend who's from Libya and like one of the things that was sort of saying was the, you know, obviously the toppling of um, Gaddafi kind of like there was a certain order that he kind of kept, um, like, you know, he could guarantee the electricity and basic things like that. And obviously once he was toppled, everything kind of went a bit but a bit crazy and, un- and unreliable. Yes, I think sort of the standard of living decreased quite a bit. So mm. there were times, I think I mentioned in the book too, that um, like water was hard to get at some points, electricity, there were long lines at gas stations. So just that quality of life and standard of living, it started to grow steadily worse as well. Yeah, There was a lot of chaos with the militias being in charge because it wasn't centralized. It mm. was very disparate. And so when you have all those different um, militias running things, there's no, there's no real law and order. It comes down to like the neighborhoods and what they were able to set up on their own. So for example, in Benghazi, um, one of the things that um, I think surprised people was that uh, there was a militia providing the perimeter security, so the outer security. The reason for that was that there really was no functioning like police or military in the country. So we had the same thing when we were there. So the Zintan militia provided our outer security, the perimeter security around the um, embassy and the residence compound. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about then your arrival in Libya and and tell us what you can about what your job was while stationed there? So I arrived in July 2013 Hmm. and flew into Tripoli International Airport. So I'm, you know, people can't see me, but I'm blonde hair and blue eyes and tall. Like I look clearly American. So I stood out stood out a lot. I have found that to be both good and bad, right? Yeah. It drew a lot of attention, but the good part about that is sometimes it draws the attention of people you want. So I actually met somebody on the plane flying in um the book I call him Muhammad and was able to uh, meet with him mm. and talk to him throughout the year. So it actually ended up being good. But you know, like I said, there's there's good and bad too to flying in and standing out so much. And when I got to the um, country, I was assigned to the residence compound Mm. and was there with a group of other officers and um, security. So we had quite a lot of security. We also had Marines. So there was a Marine combat unit that was assigned to provide our security um, after the Benghazi attack. So it was a sort of a smallish unit, but they were there as well to help us. So sort of day-to-day, my role was, uh, I was there as the CIA analyst, so I was reading everything, like Mm. everything. Mm. So my whole world sort of became Libya, and that was all I did. Like from the moment I got up until the moment I went to bed, I was reading and writing and briefing and trying to learn as much as I could about what was going on in the country. I have sort of this anecdote where my boss would come up to me every morning asking, you know, well, what's going on in Libya today? Like, what do I need to know? And on the one hand, that was really hard to, um, you know, be up to speed on everything and have a ready answer every morning. 
Um, but on the other, it was very complimentary that he was basing his decisions about um, operations for the day on what I told him about what was happening in the country. Yeah, yeah. And what was sort of day-to-day life like in the CIA station? It must have been, because you're, in a sense, a bit cut off from everything, aren't you? Well, on the compound, it was very isolating. Mm. So that is definitely true. Um, I wasn't able to go out very much, especially, you know, like as an analyst. And again, because I stand out, just wasn't as safe. And I didn't want to put other people at risk driving me around um, unless, you know, I needed to be there. Yeah. So I pretty much just stayed on the compound. We would have, um, you know, meals there every morning. So I get up and have breakfast with a small group of friends and um, became sort of our breakfast club. And yeah. we would yeah. joke, the, um, all the security officers ate at the same table inside um, where we would eat outside most days. And so we started to call that when the warrior table. Yeah. So a lot of the um, security officers were former special operations of some type. So we dubbed it the warrior table. And <laughs> we actually did a lot together to try to build um, like camaraderie. So a lot of it was just based on, you know, like working out because what else can you really do there? Mm. Um, that was really the only option. So we did, um, you know, like some races and swimming and, um, I ended up taking my bow there. So I shoot archery and, uh, got approval to, to bring out my bow and arrows. <laughs> and so we just set up an improvised archery range in the, in the back. That's cool. That's cool. And um, didn't you have to um, do some deals with locals to get like bales of haze to put the targets on and stuff like that? <laughs> yes. I do um, try to track down some hay bales and then put up some plywood so that it was um, not going through and hitting the the outer wall. Yeah. Life at the station, well, I mean, one thing, what was the food any good there? <laughs> yes. We brought in our own food. We had somebody there to cook it for us. So it it was actually pretty good. I ate basically the same thing every day. So yeah. that got a little bit old, but it was still good. Have you found that experience helpful with the, I don't know, I don't know what your situation has been with the coronavirus and the lockdown, but was that ex- has that experience been helpful with surviving the kind of lockdown for the coronavirus? Absolutely. I mean, here I'm locked down for like at home yeah. with, you know, family and whatever I have access to, there's time to read books and do puzzles. Um, and there in Libya, there we were locked down, but there really wasn't time for any of that. I was working. Um, whenever I wasn't working, I was working out. Yeah. So, you know, the physical activity was really the only outlet. Um, there really just wasn't a whole lot to do. Yeah. And, and how long was a kind of working day? Just to, you know, sort of give people an idea of what it's like being in the CIA. Well, I I would say my, my level of dedication was high. I would get up probably by like 7 a.m. at the latest mm. um, to get into the office. I was usually in the office like around 7 a.m. And I didn't leave until probably 8 or 9 at night. Mm. Um, sometimes I would get up early and run if I knew it was going to be a busy day so that I could get a workout in before I went into the office. Um, and the days were quite busy um, without going into a of lot course, of detail. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of, again, a lot of just, you know, reading, reading intelligence reports, um, writing my assessment of them or briefing my assessment of them. Yeah. And um, one other thing that came up in your book was um, you sort of built some relations with some of the locals who actually worked in the station too. Are you able to tell us a little bit about them? Yes, we brought in people to um, help us with um, sort of like cleaning and Mm. cooking and things like that, um, maintaining the grounds. Uh, They they were quite lovely and I really enjoyed um, getting to know some of them. Um, there were, you know, like one or two I could practice my Arabic with, and um, it was just, it was nice being able to chat with them and get their impressions of the country as well. Some mm-hmm. of them were from um, outside the region, like sub-Saharan African. And so 
it was good to get those other perspectives. So, um, you know, I told my mom about them. And so when she would send care packages, she actually included some extra stuff and I yeah. pass it out to them as well. And there was an interesting thing as well. You mentioned about sort of spending time, uh, spending Christmas on, on the compound and also New Year's. Um, is there anything you want to mention about that? Because that was quite an interesting sort of part of the book, I thought. On Christmas, a group of us had gotten some stuff from home, you know, for the holidays. So we, um, I got a little tree from my mom with some ornaments. Somebody else got, uh, like a little gingerbread house. So we ended up taking it all to the Marines house on the compound and, um, sort of spending Christmas morning with them watching home alone and decorating this tiny tree. And so it was, it was nice because we had, you know, a little bit of time off to um be able to do something to celebrate um that was also the first day i think i pulled out my bow and and started practicing with it um (laughs) and then new year's so we didn't we didn't really have like whole days off or even if we did like what what are you gonna do anyway so um sort of the morning on each day but i have this tradition where i get up and watch the sunrise so for anybody who has not been to Libya and may not get the chance to ever go, Libya has a beautiful sky. Um, it was by far my favorite part about being there. It was just lovely. And so I have this tradition on New Year's where I'll get up early and watch the sunrise on the new year. Yeah. So I, I did yeah. that. And it, I mean, it was gorgeous. That's great. So all that aside, to life aside, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the sort of significant events that happened whilst you're stationed in Libya? Because you were there for about, a, was it a year you were there? Yep, just over a year I was in the country. Yeah, and just looking at the list that I created, a lot happened whilst you were there. <laughs> yes, there was quite a lot. So I got to Libya in July of 2013. Mm. And that same month, there was like a rocket attack against the, the UAE residents and that spring, there had been a VBID outside I think, the French and British embassies. So, quick question: So, what's a VBID? A vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, so car bomb. There were um, there were already attacks sort of starting by the time I got there, and then yeah. they just they increased. So it continued to devolve. In August, at the end of Ramadan, there was um, sort of this faux coup. Well, there were reports that the president had brought in the Misratan militia um, to oust the prime minister. Um, It was really hard to actually determine what was going on. All we could Mm. say for sure was that the Misratan militia did come in and um, there were additional checkpoints throughout the city. But people saw the convoy coming in and they, you know, the assumption was that it was this coup. So I joked about it being a, a faux coup and um, the ambassador did not care for that. So <laughs> I was like, all right, no more joking. I learned that in August. So <laughs> a lot of time to um, really refine my briefing style. Yeah. So then later, also in August, we had a, so it was called Camp 27 and we had this program with the military and the 1208 program to do some training. Um, with the Libyan military and the camp was overrun and all the sort of vehicles and weapons that um, the United States had provided were stolen. Um, We didn't know who got them, but of course that was, that was a big problem. Are you able to tell us what kind of weapons they were, that were stolen? I mean, I could speculate, but you know. It was a range of weapons. Yeah. But pretty bad ones. I see. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we did. We didn't want them in um, yeah. the hands of the militias. Yeah, or you know, heaven forbid that they actually made it to Ansar al Sharia. That would be much worse. Yeah, yeah. There was an attack against the Russian embassy. Just like just a weird story, trying to figure out what had happened. So there was a woman who was Russian, and mm. the Libyans thought she might have been associated with the. Uh, um, Russian embassy and it was in this particular neighborhood and so the neighborhood went after the woman and they ended up capturing her and taking her to Matiga but then mm. there was still a lot of anger about what happened and so that um, that neighborhood group went and attacked the Russian embassy so they ended up um, evacuating they took the coastal road which yeah. was one of the factors that ruled it out for us later the other one was that we actually had an incident along that coastal road in December of that same year. So we had a military team. They mm. were in the country sort of helping with um, evacuation planning. So they went out that coastal road and they made it to Sabratha mm. and that area around there. 
And then they they were not on the main road. They had gone off the beaten track, but um, one of the side roads they went on, there was a checkpoint. Yeah. So the team, the military members, they were stopped. One of the vehicles got through, the other was stopped. They were actually held on the side of the road um, at gunpoint and then taken back to Tripoli eventually and held overnight. So it was quite a scary incident Yeah, um, where we yeah. had to send out our quick reaction force and our security officers went mm. to help them. And were these guys from your compound? Um, they were... They had come in mm. on a short trip to mm. help with this evacuation planning. So yeah. they were, I mean, everybody there was associated with the U.S. mission in some way. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify for the listeners, so the, the Russian embassy attacks, so the, the Russians tried to use the coastal road as a point of escape. Is that right? Yes, and they did. Yeah. And, and they made it all the way to Tunisia. So sort of the coastal road goes through Tripoli over to Sabratha and then over to Tunisia, which I realize there's no map for people to see but um that's right <laughs> they could google it but uh, yeah. so yeah so this coastal road takes them all the way to nigeria and um and and so the russians basically use that and and then since that's been used it now ruins it for anybody else who wants to use that as an escape route is that right yes and we were still looking into it but then we ran into our own problem where we had um these military members that were held hostage essentially for um, a day yeah yeah with the the guys who were taken um how did that resolve itself how did that play out it was christmas time so the ambassador had gone on leave and it was the charged affairs um so he was there it was the deputy chief of mission and he went yeah. to the uh, ministry of interior where they ended up being taken and held and was able to secure their release mm. so that was, yeah quite a hairy thing unfortunately like immediately after new year's we had the the murder of a british guy and a lady from new zealand on a beach um and there was also a spike in kidnappings as well um and then there was even a further instance involving a ship called mv morning glory which was an oil tank um, are you able to talk to us a bit about the MV Morning Glory episode and how that affected you? So this was 2014. Um, I want to yeah. say March right now. So the MV Morning Glory had come in to fill up at one mm. of the um, ports. So the ports had been closed at that point. They mm. were not open. And so there was this idea that um, they were um, stealing the oil from Libya. And so the government asked for our assistance. So the president actually approved sending in a Navy SEAL team and mm. um, stopping the ship and turning it around and bringing it back to uh, Tripoli, ended up mm. getting back to Tripoli. So it was interesting because, you know, there were a lot of different times that we could have sort of intervened to help that um, I have in the book, like Muhammad asking, like, why aren't why aren't you helping us with these different things? So there were um, these kidnappings that were happening that you mentioned already. Um, mm. So there were a lot of things where we could have intervened. And um, up to that point as well, like the um, the group that conducted the Benghazi attacks in Sorel Sharia, um, up to that point, we hadn't um, targeted them in any way. There had been no repercussions on that group other than being designated yeah. a terrorist organization but um you know there hadn't been any operations against them to that point so this was really the first time that we intervened since since the arab spring mm. and there was a lot of um anger on the part of the libyans that we did it because they were tying it to the oil rather than to you know the government's um mm. autonomy and and this um sense that this other group the federalist movement was sort of taking control from the central government. So so there was some um, anger that that was the moment at which we chose to intervene. Yeah, because locally the optics of that, it kind of makes out that America only cares when there's oil involved. Yep, that was very much the sentiment um, mm. from the people I was able to talk to. So there were two other significant events um, mm. where we did go in and conduct operations so that um, special operations forces went in and captured. Um, so in 2013, in Tripoli, um, the um, the terrorists behind the East Africa embassy bombings. Um, so uh, there was a that I mean that was a major operation against 
him where he was captured and then taken him back to the U.S. for trial. And then the other one came later, um, and that was the leader of Ansar al-Sharia in Benghazi. Um, so that was June 2014, where um, Special Operations Forces again went into Benghazi and captured him and took him back to the U.S. for trial. So there were actually other major operations as well, um, but those I think were more clearly um, like people understood why we did that. Um, if that makes sense, that yes. uh, Libyans, I didn't, they didn't like that we sort of. There's this idea that we sort of violated their sovereignty by going in, but they also understood why we did it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that helped that understanding where the repercussions could have been um, quite terrible from yeah. both of those. And and I was really concerned about it. And that was part of my job is to assess the repercussions of going in and, and capturing these terrorist leaders. Yeah. With the terrorist who was arrested linked to the, the East, Af- East African embassy bombings, there was an interesting thing in your book about the local reaction to that, because then the locals were quite annoyed with the government because the government was letting a kind of known terrorist wander around free and unchallenged. Yes. So when I was looking at the repercussions, we were receiving threats against mm. um, you know American diplomats, the US embassy. So those were coming in as well. But the main source of anger was was against the Libyan government, against the prime minister, that here you have this sort of known, like most wanted terrorist um, living in Tripoli, walking around, buying groceries, just yeah. living a normal life um, and why they would allow that to happen. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, understanding why we we had a problem with that, why the U.S. went in and captured him, but then also why it was necessary in the first place, why their government didn't do something. So the repercussions when they came actually came against the prime minister. So he was mm. um, captured and, and held for a while. Um, we think it was um, a group associated with the president. Um, and that was really the beginning of the it's called the Libya Revolutionary Operations Room. Um, which ended up setting itself up sort of as this kidnapping unit. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Uh, the L-R-O-R? L-R-O-R, yeah. The, which, of course, you know, in, in Arabic, it's a totally different acronym. Um, <laughs> so it's just what we called it, the L-R-O-R. So it was this group that um, set itself up to focus on kidnappings. And, and there were quite a lot of kidnappings that happened in Libya. Um, mm. Most of them... We're actually against locals, so it was um, Libyan on Libyan violence. But then, then this this group that was set up to do these kidnappings started targeting um, foreign diplomats. So it started yeah. with a South Korean trade official, and um, that was the the first one against a foreign diplomat. Um, but ultimately, ended up they ended up um, kidnapping the Jordanian ambassador to Libya, and he was held for. Um, quite a few weeks and ultimately exchanged for a terrorist that had been um, convicted in Jordan. Wow, wow. So we've, we've mentioned Benghazi before, but I mean, the shadow of the Benghazi attack against the US Embassy and the CIA annex the year before is very much in the background of your book. Um, can you talk to us about sort of what concerns you and your colleagues had and how it, that affected sort of life on the ground? The Benghazi attacks were very much on my mind constantly. I was worried something similar could happen in Tripoli, and it absolutely could have. Um, I feel like we were really fortunate that it didn't, um, especially given all the, the threats that we were facing, that they were coming in. Um, one of my main concerns, again, was Ansar al-Shria and watching what they were doing and seeing if they were coming to Tripoli. And so once we started to get reports that that was, in fact, happening, um, that really increased my um, anxiety level. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there was nothing really preventing them from coming to our front gate as they did in Benghazi. Um, so we were very much aware of it. We tried to increase our security posture in response to that. So I mentioned we had the um, militia that was providing the outer perimeter security. Um, so I was pretty confident Um they aligned more, like I said, with a kind of more secular. The other mm. side was kind of the more Islamist. So um, I was confident that um, the militia group that provided our outer security was not cooperating with the terrorist group. But that was something mm. that was on my mind that I was watching. 
we also had um, our own security officers that, um, so that was more like personnel security. So anytime somebody left the compound or like I went to the airport or anything, um, I would go with security officers. And we also had uh, armored vehicles. So they were mm-hmm. a high level of armor. And everywhere when I carried my own weapon, so I had a Glock 19 that I kept with me, um, carried a go bag. So like those sort of essential items, if you were, if you had to, you know, make a run for it and you could only take what you had with you, like it would be enough to survive um, until you could find help. So I, you know, always carried those items with me and we were very, very focused on security. Yeah, no, I bet. I mean, I, I've seen the, was it the film, 40, is it 47 hours? And that's a very, I mean, hours, just watching yeah. the film. Th- yeah, 13 hours, sorry, 47 <laughs> hours, 47 hours. That was a long one. Uh, sorry, 13 hours. And that's seriously intense. I don't know how accurate it is, but I mean, my God, that was a very intense film. And, and honestly, I would, again, I would hate to be in that situation. Yeah, and so we were worried that something similar could happen, right? So we mm. had the again, the two separate facilities that um, we were operating out of. We had um, people going back and forth um, between the two. So like the the setup in general was pretty similar. Mm. We had Marines, so that was something different. So I'm not sure if, if listeners are aware that normally in uh, like a war zone type environment where the, the host government... Um, cannot provide security. Normally, we have a military presence. So, like when I was in Iraq, um, I was on a military base there. A U.S. Sorry, U.S. military base. So, um, Libya was different in that. Um, I think, like generally, people are aware from the Benghazi attacks that there was no like cavalry there. Right? There were no reinforcements. Mm-hmm. That help was a three-hour flight away, and we were still facing that same thing in Tripoli. So. Um, like in the spring, we had a rocket attack that nearly hit us on the on the compound. Um, so something like that, you know, if the rockets hit our compound, that's done. That's done. That's over in you know mm-hmm. seconds. Um, so even if the military came in to help, it would it would still be a three hour lag in time. Um, so having the Marines there did help a little bit, but it was it was still not enough, right? So like. Yeah. If an attack like Benghazi happened in Tripoli against our compound, there were not enough Marines to counter the number of people that flooded that um, the embassy in Benghazi, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Almost enough Marines to maybe help people get out, but not enough to kind of defend the place. Right. It's really more a show of force. So mm. um they were their presence was there. People knew that they were there, so it it was really more about the appearance of it rather than um, sort of an actual ability to stop an attack with thousands of people coming at us. It's just it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that kind of was across in your book, um, and I'm maybe putting it politely, but there's a sort of clash of cultures between the State Department and the CIA, and especially during your time in Libya. Can you talk to us a little bit about the sort of relationship between the CIA um, sort of station and officers there in Libya and the kind of the US ambassador during your time, uh, during your deployment? So I can speak to me as a CIA officer and my relationship with the ambassador. So she and I... We got to know each other pretty well um, Mm. because I was briefing her on a weekly basis. So she would um, either come to where I was or I would go to where she was and um, provide sort of this intelligence briefing on what was going on in the country. Um, It was often with the country team. So um, other uh, sort of members from the embassy, like the defense attache and um, the legal attache. So things like that. Um, and they would be there and we would talk about the um, the situation, like the current situation in Libya and what our mm-hmm. focus needed to be on that week and sort of assessment of threats. So um, especially as the political dynamics started to change and um, so there was this dissatisfaction with the current regime. So Ali Zedong became less and less popular as the year went on. Um, the Libyan people became quite frustrated with the 
the government. So there was this movement in like February 2014, like mm. no to extension that they didn't want um, this unelected government to continue to remain in power forever, that they wanted to hold elections. So once that political dynamic started to shift, um, that's kind of when um, we clashed a little bit more um, because the ambassador was hearing things from her um, sort of from Ali Zaydan himself or from um, sort of her level and it was these public figures. And then of course I was briefing on the intelligence and um, the non-public information. So it became, um, I think sort of frustrating and challenging when those two things were at odds and trying to explain the difference between the two. So I, you know, Sometimes it became a little bit contentious, but my job was to present the information to her in a way that she would hear and understand and really take in. So um, like having conflict wasn't going to work. You know, I had to figure out a way to um, be able to explain it that um, that she would hear. And so worked really hard to, um, you know, sort of have a good working relationship. And, and and I think we did for the most part. Mm. It really, really devolved at the end, though, um, once the fighting really started and it got really dangerous. Um, I mean, it was dangerous the whole year, right? But, mm. but that was sort of next level. Um, and at that point, um, I think she um, wasn't handling the danger as well. And, and that created some some issues yeah was it because i get the impression from other people i've spoken to in the past that there's a sense from the ambassadors and state department side that the cia might do something that undermines what they do um and um you know the situation on the ground deteriorating did she i don't know were they viewing was she viewing it as a kind of diplomatic failure i think that's correct that that um that's definitely a concern just between um you know, diplomacy and intelligence in general, um, mm-hmm. that one will undermine the other. And, and I, th- I think that is fairly common. I don't agree with it. Um, being the intelligence officer, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we don't do things, you know, just like going rogue or that kind of, that, that doesn't, doesn't happen. There's this idea that somebody's going to go like go rogue and do something without, approval but you know any operation has to be approved like at the highest levels of government so nobody really goes off on their own and does something everything is like a group effort Um, yeah yeah well yeah there is sometimes you get this commentary you see where people seem to make it out that the cia just do things to stir up trouble yeah um but like i said any operation is um a coordinated Mm. effort with headquarters. So I think I kind of go in a little bit of detail at the end, like there was a sense that um, we were on our own out there. Mm. But then Mm. you start to hear like when I got back the year after I returned, you know, I started to hear about everything these other agencies and departments were doing to help us. And so we were definitely not alone when we were out there, even if it felt that way. Um, But there's it's always a coordinated sort of group effort whenever like these major operations are happening. So it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum or, or unbeknownst to the president or something like that. It, you know, it, it's always um, like a pretty transparent process. Some things are um, of course secret um, from public knowledge, but it, it's not, these things aren't done without the proper approvals. So obviously the situation deteriorated and there was a decision made to pull everybody out. So can you talk a little bit about the logistics of the evacuation uh, and what was kind of going through your minds of your colleagues during that evacuation and the build up to it? So at the end of my time there, this was um, July of 2014, um, it grew much, much worse, right? Like the situation Mm. evolved to the point that we had to shelter in place first for a couple of weeks and then evacuate. So the it started on July 13th, um, very early in the morning. Uh, we knew, so we got a call, like the um, the militia that started this civil war, I'll call it, um, 
actually called the embassy and let them know like, hey, we're going to we're going to start firing on the Zentan tomorrow. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. It's kind of them. <laughs> and I, I know I'm paraphrasing, obviously. So, you know, it, it was odd. There had been a lot of threats, but it, yeah. that one was weirdly specific. So we we're like, OK, um, we need to be prepared for this one. So um, the night before we had an all hands, um, my boss, you know, let everybody know, um, have your have your gear packed and ready. Know where your passport is you know, weapons loaded, all that. Mm. Um, just be ready just in case. So, you know, like that night I slept with my uh, go bag right by my bed, my running shoes on the floor. Um, so I was ready. But the next morning it started, the fighting started and it was, it was intense. It um, was hundreds of rockets, other heavy weapons fire, small arms fire. Um, and it, it didn't stop, right? Like it, kept going for days. Yeah. We ended up being there about two weeks during this heavy fighting. So at first, you know, we had a code red where we all went and got in the bunkers. So that that's what we did that morning. Once it became apparent that the, the rockets were not stopping, that we were going to mm. have to go, um, go to the office so that I could start coordinating with CIA headquarters, that um, I could be passing information back to them because of course this was going to, catch everyone's attention and and it was all over the news when it happened um so i had to walk outside into the middle of the 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 bombings um so they were targeting the airport tripoli international airport and you know walked outside and could see that it was hitting like the planes you could see the smoke billowing up from the planes and like the air was just already thick with um that smell of you know like the gunpowder i mean you could smell it and you could feel it um mm. so i i did it you know got into the office and and started working and i think um you know did that for two weeks and it was really quite intense for the the whole two weeks that we were there and i've had a lot of people ask as well like weren't you scared i'm like of, of course <laughs> yeah of course i was scared um I think I was able to handle it because I was so busy that my attention, like my mind didn't have time to dwell on my fear. Like it was very much focused on the job at hand. The people who ended up struggling a lot more were the ones who had too much time to think about it. Um, and some people had you know, quite a hard time. Um, they kind of fell apart. Not bad. Um, so we... So I was going over and briefing the ambassador every day on the status of forces. Once it became clear, we were essentially being surrounded because the Zintan were being surrounded and we were on their land. Um, once that became clear, we knew we were going to have to really be thinking about evacuation. There was also um, like a VBIED attack against uh facility that was really close to the embassy. Um, there was a, sorry, a suicide bombing. That one was a suicide bombing. And then there were a couple of VB, VBIDs that were found nearby um, around our facility. So um, the threat, you know, dramatically increased. Um, yeah. Even in those two weeks, you know, and beyond um, worrying about the rockets, which of course, like, you can't s stop them, right? There's no way to stop a rocket attack. And we went to the bunkers, but it, you know, in reality, a bunker wasn't going to stop it either. So obviously, this this bombing increased and it it, it become untenable. So what happens? How do you, how did you evacuate? What's the what's the kind of procedure? And what was the plan? So there was a um, meeting, so video teleconference between um, the ambassador and my boss and Washington D.C. And the decision was made. I was not on that call, so I was not privy to that. I found out when everybody else did the next day. Yeah, um, yeah. We were looking at a lot of different options. Um, so I mentioned the coastal road. So that was one we ruled it out because of everything else that had happened there. And actually the British embassy ended up using that road and, and were actually attacked when they, when they evacuated. Mm. So we ruled that one out. There were like options, like we could, go the other direction and go east but of course that's Benghazi and that was not an option um we could 
you know, try to go out by sea and like take a ferry. They had done that before, but um, ruled that out because we'd have to go through Tripoli. So it was this process of, you know, what's actually a viable option um, and what do we have to rule out? So the two that um, we came down to, one was ultimately um, we could pull back to another base and then have the U.S. military fly in and pick us up, or we could drive all the way overland to Tunisia. We had planned for it, so the route was to go south and then over. Um, so it was a much, much longer. Um, the reason that they couldn't just fly in and pick us up was that there was so much anti-aircraft artillery in Tripoli airspace. The airport was the first thing that was targeted. So we could see that there was a damage, but we couldn't um, assess like if, if the runways were still usable. Um, we had other like uh, landing pads identified, but again, because of the anti-aircraft artillery, we couldn't have them flying in. So we would have to um, pull back, so drive to yeah. another base somewhere if we were going to be picked up. So I always found it fascinating because the it, it was chosen to go by road because in my mind, you know, you're in Libya, there's desert. There must be a place where you could land a osprey or something and pick people up. But that's Hollywood. That's my Hollywood adult brain. <laughs> well, no, that was essentially our idea that we were going to um, go south to uh, an empty airspace there. We actually sent mm -hmm. down a security team to check it out and assess it. Um, the day we learned about the evacuation um, they thought it was a good option. I think that was actually our preferred option, but um, ultimately the ambassador chose the route that we took. So it was announced um, the 24th mm. of July. So we had about a day and a half to get ready. Um, we started with a top priority items to destroy first in case we were attacked or ambushed. Um, so we sort of, did it in order of priority with what we were destroying, but ultimately the um, decision was made to destroy everything. Yeah. So we had this huge fire pit. It was huge. We were actually going to be using it as a bunker, like building it out as um, a more heavily fortified bunker. It was still just a hole in the ground at that point. So started this destruction fire and it was like, all this equipment in there and it's totally non <laughs> like started with incendiary device. These are things yeah. that shouldn't be burning. Um, yeah. So the first one was <laughs> pulling out hard drives, right? So um, every computer and laptop had to pull out the hard drive and then we had to drive um, bolts through it and then we put it on the fire. So <laughs> being very thorough, um, all the documents and I'm, Truly, it was like in the movies. Um, we had to shred it all and this huge, um, you know, like heavy duty shredder and putting all the paper in there and like the pulp and the air was so thick from it and it was loud. I mean, it, it was exactly like in the movies. Yeah, you must have good shredders because my shredder can't handle more than six bits of paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was made for this, though. <laughs> so, um, Could I get one somewhere? <laughs> eBay. <laughs> so it, I mean, we had the day and a half to get ready. And so it was, mm. you know, packing up our personal belongings, what we could take with us. We only had room to just take uh, like a backpack. So yeah. everything else that we had there just went on the fire. Um, and then to get the, the route set, the vehicles ready. So it was actually quite busy. Um, even in that last day and a half, we didn't really sleep much. So I think one of the things um, people aren't really aware of is that the evacuation itself actually took about 26 hours. So it was quite long. And that was from start to finish. Um, we had to drive all the way to Tunis. So we left on the morning of the 26th, um, met at the cars like 4 a.m. and left around 5.36 and didn't get into um, Tunis until Sunday morning. So it was... It was quite a long drive. Yeah. And it was a one of the things of this plan as well as you were trying to sneak out and uh, that got a little bit messed up, didn't it? It did indeed. Yeah. We didn't want anyone to know that we were leaving mm. the, um, the risk of ambush. 
significantly increased if people were aware and could plan ahead to catch us on the way out. So it was really important that nobody find out that we were planning to leave. Um, I think the local focus was very much on the fighting, so it Mm. wasn't so much on on us, on the American facilities, but we knew that Ansar al-Sharia had come to Tripoli and that they were there and they were planning an attack against us. So that Mm. was very much on my mind that I was really worried that they would find out and then stage um, an ambush against us. So the, the morning of... We were all to meet um, at the residence and then drive out from there. And mm. the um, staff from the embassy facility came early. Um, and it was a little messed up because it was in the wrong order. We had yeah. this um, set plan for how we were going to evacuate out. So there were chalks, we called them, where there would be a certain number of vehicles in each section or chalk. And they would drive together and then there would be a delay between um, the sections so that um, Mm -hmm. if there was an ambush, um, the other sections could avoid it and take another route if needed. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it it was out of order. So it took quite a while to uh, rearrange that morning and, you know, it was dark. And of course, the the bombing and the the shooting is still going on. That didn't really Mm -hmm. stop. So that was very much still happening. And yeah, when we pulled out that was that was terrifying right like to pull out of that front gate and not know if there was an ambush because by coming early that had given um the locals time to you know post about it and talk about it and it was already on social media so i knew then you know leaving like an hour later but that's still an hour um and that might have given a group time to plan an ambush so um, it was really quite scary to pull out of the gate knowing we could be going right into an ambush. Yeah, God. I, yeah. You, you Honestly, reading the book, it was very tense. I was, I was very tense reading that yesterday. It was just like, wow, very extreme. But, uh, you know, well done for getting through it. So, obviously, you... Uh, you managed to survive and escape because he's talking to me today, which is great. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I live. Yes. <laughs> but um, but there's a lot more to it than uh, than that. Um, but um, what happened when you returned to the States? And, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about your kind of career in the CIA after that and, and post the CIA as well? When I got back to the States, I was back at CIA mm. headquarters. And um, I think really the full impact of everything that had happened started to weigh on me. I Mm. hadn't really been aware of, you know, post-traumatic stress um, before then. Um, And I can tell you, I was on, um, this might be more detailed than you wanted to know, but I I was on my home leave and I had gone um, to the city and there were fireworks and I absolutely panicked. I hit the deck, covered my ears, started crying. I, I didn't know what was wrong. And so, Um, Mm. That year coming back, I think, was really starting to process everything that had happened and realizing, like, I had some severe post-traumatic stress. Mm. Um, There was an overwhelming sense of loss um, in coming Mm. back from Libya. It was really hard to reconcile that um, I had been so, you know, so dedicated and um, we put so much into it. Um, The U.S. um, people you know, fought for it. Um, people died for it um, because yeah. because it was meant to have been so critical to our national security. And then to just sort of give up um, and leave that it just, it was sort of soul crushing um, and, yeah. and very hard to reconcile with staying in and, and, you know, purpose and having been made to feel expendable that um, we were just sort of left there to die. Um, without recourse. So um, I decided to leave the CIA. Um, Again, at my mom's urging, she uh, has this um, theory that you should never make a life-changing decision after a traumatic event, like wait a year. Mm. So I did. Mm. And um, it gave me some time to prepare um, to leave. Um, And I mentioned before, you know, that that time that year also gave me time to learn about how everybody actually tried to help us. Um, 
And that was really important for me to have learned that there were all these different agencies that were doing so many things to try to bring us home and keep us safe. And so that meant quite a lot to learn about that. But I knew I still needed to leave for me. So I did. I resigned from the CIA in uh, 2015, so just the year later, and then moved back to the Pacific Northwest um, in the Seattle area to be near my family. So my mom's health also deteriorated. and um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Also, I came back here to help her. Um, but I am doing emergency management. So your question about That's coronavirus, um, that has yeah. been my world <laughs> the last few months. Wow. Um, so we're heavily involved in the response to that and um, helping with the um, health department and um, and taking care of that. So it's all, you know, work with first responders and um, planning for disasters. So my experience um, participating in an evacuation and sort of the shelter in place, it has definitely given me some unique experience to be able to um, help my hometown, which has been yeah. nice. That is good. That is good. Well, look, Sarah, thank you so much for taking your time today. Um, where can listeners sort of find out more about you, your work, and your great book? So I have a website, www.sarahmcarlson.com. And my book is available anywhere books are sold, so Amazon and Barnes & Noble, Target. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.